Tonight we're here to talk about uh, one of the more famous works of science fiction and fantasy, uh, A Catechal for Leverwitz by uh, Walter Miller. And um, I don't want to, uh, I say this every time and then, and then violate what I'm just about to say, I don't want to dominate the conversation tonight. I do want to uh, just put a couple of things on the table as things to talk about. The first thing I want to put on the table, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll come back to reminding you of them, the first thing is this is written at pretty much the, near the height of the Cold War. It's written you know, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's written at a period in which you know, between, say, 1958 and 1965, if we were going to, if I may quote Slim Pickens in the movie, going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Ruskies, nuclear combat toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Ruskies, uh, this was the time. The evidence is that Kennedy, during the discussions, uh, during the, mis the, the missile crisis, uh, broke down crime and uh, was demoralized by the whole thing. Now, one of the, and, and, it's in, and people were forced to take sides, and I think this was one of the most unfortunate things that happened to dominate the world that I grew up in and have lived in ever since, that is the, the ideological rigidity that we, we've had to live in since the 1930s. So, for example, World War II became a war of democracy against fascism. And fascism turns out to be people who believe in marriage and family and sexual morality <laughs> and, and staying in one gender. Um, and, and of course, our gallant democratic ally who helped us win that war, and by the way, which we have tried to minimize ever since, was the Soviet Union. The Soviets, they suffered more, they, they, you know, they suffered more than we did. Okay, but you know, uh, is does is somebody want to stand up today and say that uh, Stalin was somehow better than Hitler? That 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 Poland, for example, was better off under Stalin than Hitler? I mean, this is a real. I know my 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 uh, my, my my first boss here at the uh, when I came here, Leopold Tiermann, who was a uh, Polish Jew. And Leopold would say, I've lived, under, I've lived under Nazis, I've lived under communists. In my view, Nazis is better. Just because he said, he said, as long as you kept your nose clean, it didn't bother them, they didn't bother you. Now, he hid his Jewish identity from him. But he said, with the communists, he said, they don't let you alone for a minute. You can't sleep. You can't, your children, are, their, their minds are being taken over. Now, uh, I'm not saying that I know this of uh, first-hand experience. I'm simply saying that it would be hard to make a case that, uh, that, uh, that our al gallant ally, Stalin, was better than the people we were fighting. So every, but everything, but you, you couldn't talk about these things. And so in the, when the communists became our enemies, therefore you couldn't talk pragmatically. What's the best way to avoid World War III? What's the best way to, uh, to uh, guarantee increasing freedom and autonomy for the people that he took over, in, that, that the Soviets took over in Eastern Europe? No, everything aligned in the sand. My friend John Lukacs, who was a staunch anti-communist, and left Hungary 
uh, and made his way and was very happy and, and was, by the way, very, very strongly, uh, violently uh, uh, anti-Nazi and uh, adored uh, uh, Churchill. But Lukács deplored the Cold War because it made rational political discussion and negotiation next to impossible. And one of the things, and, and, and nothing I'm saying I hope will be interpreted as somehow a defense of either pacifism or non-resistance or caving in to the Russians. If, you're, if you are engaged in a struggle with a major power, you have to win that struggle by every means possible. But, but the, the, uh, the, the means that we took, opposed from the beginning by George Kennan, who was often, often, uh, often uh, labeled as being the author of our containment strategy, people like Kennan and who, by the way, there are hundreds of letters between Kennan and Lukács dis discussing these things. Uh, these were strong anti-communists who wanted a rational, practical means of dealing with a formidable enemy, rather than uh, turning the United States into some kind of mirror image of the totalitarian enemy by controlling the media, rewriting history, controlling the spin on everything. And one of the, uh, and so, but in the course of the 50s, I would say, uh, the war, uh, America got divided into, into two groups. Where did you stand on this question? And so it, even if you were an anti-war conservative like Russell Kirk, you ended up having to side with your cold warrior friends at National Review, people like Bill Buckley and Frank Meyer and those guys. And so you had to keep your mouth shut about what you thought were excesses of American imperialism. And I knew Russell pretty well. And he, he and I and, and did not disagree on any of this. And there's, there's a reason why Russell ended up uh, coming out for Pat Buchanan. It was not because he thought Buchanan was a pacifist, but because he thought that this brinksmanship being practiced uh, by the United States was, uh, was a foolish gesture of imperialism. So, but similarly, somebody I, I, I never met face to face but used to talk to on the telephone and exchange letters was Eugene McCarthy, the senator from uh, Minnesota. McCarthy, the most important thing to him was peace. Therefore, he, he swallowed his pride. He wasn't, he wasn't a leftist, but he became a leftist in the same way that Russell Kirk became an imperialist. Because the, the, the line was here. Where do, where do you stand on this issue? Where do you stand on the Vietnam War? Where do you stand on nuclear disarmament? And nuclear disarmament, of course, is the, for, for, for this evening, is the big issue because uh, the, what we had on the one side was the belief that the Soviets were going to take, make a preemptive strike and wipe us all out and destroy our ability to resist. By the way, I think that, I don't want to be, uh, let's not be naive, I, I feel sure that Stalin or Brezhnev would have done it if they thought they could get away with it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that these were nice people and that they weren't ruthless. But on the other side, on the other side, we had people who, uh, as, as they like to say in, in, uh, in uh, 
Romance languages, people who instrumentalized the, the, the fact of nuclear weapons, the threat of nuclear war, into sort of turning us into a permanent war mentality. The politics of fear-mongering was as strong in the 1950s as it had been in the 30s. And, and, uh, and, and it went on into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, I wish I could say that I wised up before everybody else. I didn't wise up until about 1978-79 on this and realize that just because you're a strong anti-communist, just because you have your eyes open about the ambitions of the Soviet Union, does not mean that it's our mission to conquer the world. And, and by the way, another Hungarian uh, friend of mine, Thomas Molnar, took this position exactly, you know, and again, a, uh, uh, no, nobody hated communism more than uh, my friend Molnar. So this, this is the context, I would say, that which we can look at this book. It's one, what's a context, because the book is so much more than simply a reflection on, on the Cold War and, and, and on nuclear weapons. Um, that is, uh, I, I, I put that as a preface because for several years in a row, either I gave a lecture or I invited somebody to lecture on the subject of the relationship between democracy and tyranny, and we, which I call the Ides of March lecture. And one of the things which is striking about this period of the Cold War is how democratic politics instrumentalized fear in order to turn the American government into an increasingly tyrannical instrument of global expansion of, of American influence. So let's get to let's get to the book. Uh, and uh, I think we should we should just start throwing out a few questions and talking generally. The uh, the 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 the, the strong quality, the really strong quality of the book is how Miller, I think, uses uh, the medieval period as a kind of template for a post-nuclear apocalyptic history. And uh, the, the, from, from the very, you know, the, the, the development of monastic communities, the, the complete collapse of civil order, the, you know, the, 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 the poverty, the filth, Miller was a Catholic convert, at least for some of his uh, post-World War II life, but, uh, but he has no uh, illusions about the quality of everyday life uh, in the early Middle Ages. Uh, let me just ask, let me, to, 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 to focus the, the conversation a little bit, let's, why don't we talk a little bit about the, 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 the nuclear horror in the novel? Because it's at the beginning and at the end. How many, uh, did, did, did we, some of us are older, the poor Montes are just children compared to some of the rest of us. Some of us remember these days, some of us remember, you know, the teacher telling you to duck and cover and get under your desk because you could, 
you could protect yourself from falling uh, uh, yeah. Keep your eyes shut too. From yes. Keep your eyes shut. Yes. Blinding flash. Yeah. So yes. how how much of this brought back memories of the uh, of the of, of 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 that era? I was so panicked that my favorite my favorite food for all my childhood was milk. And in fact, it ruined my health because all I, I would drink two glasses of milk before supper and then not eat. But I quit drinking milk at the age of 13. Why? Anybody remember? Strontium, Strontium 90. 90. Yep. Strontium 90 from a nuclear yep. fallout was, yep. in the, was in the milk. And, you know, your bones were going to fall apart. <clears throat> I'm still here and still drinking milk. <laughs> Now it's called wine. It's right on the dairy farm. I knew that that was just a wild movie. <laughs> <laughs> Manu manufactured by the Coca-Cola company. Yeah, probably. sure. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> so, do how? how were, how many of you were were uh, genuinely alarmed by uh, by the specter of nuclear holocaust? When? In the 50s. In the 50s. 50s? Yeah. I'm not saying walking around in panic, yeah. but... Uh, yeah. Well, it was ever-present. It was, it was part of your background. Yeah. You it. And you, you hated the Ruskies. Correct. I was in the 60s on the other side. Yes. <clears throat> yes, I, I remember very vividly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially around the time of the Cuban crisis. Yeah. yeah. That, yes. Well, yeah, but that's... Yeah, I think that's that was a different thing, but you know, over on the other side, that's was still very, very a strong sense that we had. I believe the thought was that if it started there, it would escalate. Yeah, and and we'd all be in great danger on both sides. Yes. Well, Chris, when you say you were on the other side, you mean you were on the other side geographically, or yes, on the other side yes, geographically right. and politically, intellectually? Oh no, 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 <laughs> geographically, geographically, you know. The 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 the, the, the uh, memories of the world of the hecatomb of the World War Two yeah. was very strong, you know, because everybody around was affected by it. And on top of it, you had this this feeling of impending doom that may happen any time, yeah. you know. And of course, Poland, uh, Poland, <laughs> you know, people in Middle America experienced nothing. One of the, you know, they experienced food shortages because the government confiscated their food on this dubious, I, I've never understood the theory. Let's say America had 100 million people, all right? They had to feed 100 million people. Okay, now, now a million people are in arms or two million people are in the military. That's just, the same people have to be fed. Why did we have to have rationing? And there's a simple reason, because they wanted it. Because in World War One they were rationing and they had wage and price controls because they, 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 they really believed in a rationally planned society. But we really, in this country, we had loved ones who died. Now, obviously, not, not, most of us are too old. I mean, I, I was born at the very end of the war. Well, Mark Kennedy was born at the end of World War One, so that's a little different. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, so we don't, I, I, I can remember growing up and uh, Wheaties boxes had a masks called the Great Dictators. And it had a mask of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, you know, and uh, it was, 
If you were a loser, you got the mask of Mussolini. But uh, <laughs> the uh, but for us, it was all movie. It was all newsreels. You know, we didn't. We I don't. Know, Americans really didn't suffer other than having you know a husband or father off off fighting. But for Poland, once again, you had the good fortune to be in the middle of everything. Well, those of oh, those of us that had to mix the coloring into the margarine. <laughs> The plastic bubble but that solved the problem. Amazing but those masks here, what they were a reflection of, of the big time propaganda on the other side. I, I didn't remember. I don't remember. I'm too young. But my uncle told me that he was he was forced to take part in the in the May first parades and other parades where they would pull like a swine. That would have a tag, a Roosevelt or Churchill, that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. 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 Those, those effigies, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But Mark Kennedy remembers from his uh, wartime uh, yeah, margarine experience. In my family, my mother made me. Yeah, I was the one who had to mix. Do you young kids wouldn't remember this margarine? It came in the early days, and in Wisconsin, down into the 60s, mm -hmm. margarine came, well, it looked like lard. Exactly. And then it had a little uh, color plastic packet, bubble. and you banged it, yeah. and then you had to work it in. Because it, Wisconsin, America's dairy state, yeah. refused to sell colored margarine. And by the way, not being a libertarian, I approve of this entirely. Wisconsin's biggest... Uh, economic interest that kept all these family farms going was uh, was the dairy farm. So my mother would give me this stuff, and I had to do it, and I'd say, I'm not eating it. Go, what do you mean you're not eating it? It's better for it. I said, I don't care. It's a chemical It's chemical garbage. I'm not eating this stuff. You can't tell the difference. So she was, every day of the week, she would give me something and claim it was butter, and it was margarine, or claim it was margarine, and it was butter. She didn't fool me once. I said, Mother, this stuff, this stuff sticks to the roof of my mouth. It's just totally disgusting. Kids have a better sense of tactile and taste yeah. than adults do. Oh, yeah. And adults <laughs> just dismiss it. But Tom, is it true that in Superior Duluth that they used taconite to color the butter? <laughs> <laughs> taconite was like gold up there. Taconite, Chris, is a is a is a low grade uh, of uh, iron ore, iron, yeah. which they uh, found that they could go back into the mines up on the Masabi Range, mm -hmm. and they could. It was supposed to create this uh, this second wave of affluence up there, which uh, it, 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 it maybe helped to survive briefly, but... Um, All it did is sink the Edmund Fitzgerald. Were they, was that carrying tacklebite? That's right. Uh -huh. That's right. Well, that's the song that perhaps I should have played instead of yeah. We'll Meet Again. And the second savior of the economy up there is wild rice. Yes. <laughs> Now, that can only be harvested by uh, Native Americans. Native Americans right. I almost said Indians, but I've, I've learned my lesson. Careful. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, um, that's only a term that applies to the senator from Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, this, uh, how many, how many people liked the book? Uh, oh yeah. Okay, everybody liked the book. Had you? How many had read it before? Okay, very few. Uh, I know Mark Kennedy had never read a science fiction book before, uh, except me. Had you ever read The War of the Worlds or uh, The Time Machine? No. 
So, um, what what most impressed people about the book, either reading it for the first time or rereading it? What 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 sets it apart from? Because uh, there were a lot of books about nuclear holocaust. There was uh, the most popular book, probably at around 1960, was a book called On the Beach by Neville Shute. I think it's in Australia. Yeah. And they made a movie out of it. Gregory mm -hmm. made a movie out of it. And uh, so this book, uh, the uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, never reached that level of uh, popularity. So what? Uh, what sets this book apart, do you think, from other uh, post-apocalyptic uh, Mark? It's, it's concerns with the traditional religious morals yes. and history. But I've never read anything else in such <laughs> so, yes. But that, that, that is the only thing that held me through reading through it. Yeah. And uh, the, the other worries about um, this diagram and that diagram and what it yeah. meant and whether that, uh, if it had continued in that vein, I would have tossed it aside. So that helped me. Yeah, so it, it's the, and the the monastery is an interesting, is an interesting institution because the monastery was set up or it, 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 it developed its identity because some sort of nuclear physicist or engineer named Leibowitz had survived the, the destruction, the, the, the time of fire from heaven. And he had become a, a monk of sorts. And, uh, and then during the period of, of, that they called simplification, when they destroyed all the evidence of learning, both, both scientific and uh, humane, uh, he was uh, he was he was he was killed. He was by a, by a lynch mob. So the abbey, this abbey, was set up to to uh, just like the uh, some of the early Christian abbeys, especially uh, some of the early Italian abbeys, set up to preserve learning. But in this case, it's to preserve all learning that they had, including and especially this technical learning, which I don't think they quite realized that if anybody, if anybody knew what the blessed Leibowitz knew, you could start building hydrogen bombs again. And of course, that, 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 that's the recurring irony. They have saved, they, they, are, they are morally opposed to all of this, but they have saved some of the evidence that can be used to, to spark a renaissance of, of scientific and technological thought. What are other, what are, uh, and, and of course that, that aspect, that irony comes out especially brilliantly in the scene where Thon Tadeo, coming from the, uh, the empire of Texarkana, where he is an illegitimate relative of the Hannigan, all of these things are so reminiscent of these, of these thugs like Charlemagne and his descendants, it's very funny. And, uh, and he, of course, he is a barbarian still with all sorts of technical and mathematical interests which he doesn't want to admit he is rediscovering, not discovering for the first time. And then, of course, in the big showdown uh, before he leaves where he starts talking about, well, the human race as it exists 
at that point is not really uh, descended from the people who created the civilization before the Holocaust. They, they were created as creatures by those people. And the abbot, the abbot who is a rational person and who is, who is logically trained, points out this is, this is an absurdly complicated thesis to account for. You know, it, 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 it only confuses us, but it gives people an excuse for being beasts and for acting like beasts. And so this this moral issue, this you know, the, the, our human responsibility to take charge over uh, over our lives and to behave responsibly about the technology. And the abbot in the, in that section of the book has has a very dubious view of the future, which has ended up being proved right. Or aren't we there now? <clears throat> we yeah. Permission mm -hmm. to act like beasts. Yeah. It's a beastly society we live in today. Civilization. I was reminded a little bit, you know, there were uh, in the South in the 1840s and 50s, there were people who were writing for a uh, magazine called DuBose Review in, uh, in New Orleans, and they believed that uh, blacks and whites had evolved separately from apes. And of course this meant that you could therefore treat black people as not fully human. Now, I'm not saying this to, uh, to, uh, to uh, ridicule the institution of slavery, which is a universal human institution, but when you start coming up with scientific theories like this, you really, you're on the verge of opening concentration camps and, and, and firing sure. up the ovens. You know, naive prejudice is one thing, pursuing self-interest is one thing, but when you start to develop theories that get your people off the hook and demonize other people, I, th I think you're getting into morally very perilous, perilous activity, very perilous ground. You mean like Margaret Sanger? Yeah, like Margaret Sanger. Right. Right. We, 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 have to, we have to sterilize those people. We have to use contraception and abortion because, because black and brown people aren't human. Oh, Mrs. Clinton and her latest example of deplorable people. <laughs> Same thing. It's the same, same thought. But you would discern some roots of it in the Talmudic dual morality yeah. concept, as many people, uh, I think, have done. Uh, and that, that's an interesting uh, and dangerous uh, area to, uh, <laughs> to look into. The, uh, if you're, are you referring to the fact that in, the, in, in Talmudic writings, by which I, I am no means an expert, I did used to know, I used to have a friend who was considered one of the two or three great experts in the world, um, uh, uh, Rabbi Jacob Neusner. <coughs> but in a lot of Talmudic writing, it would, but it, which flows directly out of the Pentateuch, though, because it's, it's there in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. that there's one law for the Jew and one law yes, for the, the non-Jew. Exactly yes. And one of the things I found out uh, after painful study, you know, I, I tried, to, tried to figure out the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan story. And the Good Samaritan story, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the the man learned in the law says, what what is the great commandment, Master? And he says, well, love, you know, uh, you know, to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then this very clever expert in Old Testament law says, who is my neighbor? Well, now neighbor, the word there used in Latin, translating Greek, translating Hebrew, 
has nothing to do with the concept of somebody who lives near you, near you which is what our word neighbor, Nachbar in German, means he who is nigh, he who is, you know, the, these yes. people around me are neighbors. No, 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 no. Uh, it is uh, neighbor means, and it's, transla it's, it's consistently translated as a separate concept in Greek and Latin from the Hebrew. I, I think the Hebrew word is para. And the word means he to whom you have a moral responsibility. Yes, the brethren, right? That's right. The people, the first people you have are your, your immediate family, the members of your clan, the members of your tribe, and ultimately, the, the, the ultimately only the Jewish people. And so therefore, Jesus says, who are your, who's your neighbor? Well, let me tell you a little story about this filthy Samaritan. We all know how disgusting and horrible they are. Well, it turns out that he, because, but again, the word neighbor is totally misleading because the, who, to whom do I owe moral responsibility? And what he says is shockingly, shockingly, the Samaritan is the real person, the real, you might say, friend or brother and not the, not the, uh, not the priest, not the Levite, but this disgusting, filthy outsider whom Jews have been taught all their life to hate. But that word may be appearing only in English in the English translation. Neighbor, yeah. yeah. Neighbor. Yeah, no, no, you're right. That is only because it's not there in Latin. It's not be it the in the, the in Jerem Jerem translates uh, the, the, the 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 Greek uh, uh, very clearly, but the Greek reflects a uh, uh, hundred passages in the Old Testament where they distinct, there's passages where neighbor means neighbor are very clear, mm -hmm. and there are passages like that in the New Testament. But, but in the modern, modern languages, yeah. I think in Polish, the, 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 word, the word used there is brother. Yeah. Who's my brother? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's a better, it's not quite perfect, but it's right. a better word the, because the Christians called each other brother. Mm -hmm. The two words that Christians used for each other were brother and friend. In the in the in the earliest days, and so to whom do I owe a moral responsibility to treat him as a human being? The uh, the uh, I, I didn't want to get sidetracked. Thanks a lot, Chris, I, on this. But the 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 Romans and the Greeks didn't. One of the reasons they disliked Jews was because they thought Jews had a double moral standard, and they were that they they thought they were they were misanthropists. They hated the human race because only they counted and nobody else counted. Whereas the Christian message, started, starting with Jesus, oh, well, by the way, not starting with because it's there in, in Jonah, the story of Jonah. It's there throughout the book of Job. Job is not a Jew. That's the reason he's made in the story, not a Jew. The prophets say over and over and over, just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're better than other people. You have to have the circumcision of the heart. And so the pro prophetic Judaism then reaches its, its fulfillment in, in the preaching of Jesus and his apostles. But, um, and that was, that, was the big, that, was, that was the big dividing line. So the, the, these kinds of theories that Thon Tadeo, by the way, I get, is Thon, is that, imagine a, uh, imagine a Castilian Spanish pronunciation of Don, is that why they came up with it? I mean. Uh, because it obviously means Lord, or you know, it, it's a it's a, a title, but that 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 teaching uh, is which dehumanizes people and degrades them, 
is rejected. There are other, other, other instances where the monks, the teaching in the monastery, rejects that kind, or the or the church, the Church of New Rome. We're never told where New Rome is going to be located, where they reject that. Well, what about mutants? What about people with two heads, etc., etc.? And the the they're called the Pope's children. Why? Because the Pope says you can't kill them because they're human. In other words, like defective children born today or children with birth defects, which people like Madame Clinton say you should kill them in the womb. And so the, the, the Catholic Church has stood up and said human is human is human. And it doesn't matter how freakish they are. There's you, and of course, this culminates in the final, uh, well, they, the, it's the final real scene of the, uh, of the novel. Mm-hmm. Does somebody want to talk about that? The woman with two heads. Two heads. The, what, Mrs. Grail. Right. Is that a significant name, by the way? No, it's just Holy. <laughs> 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 oh, you just made it up. So, so, but Mrs. Grail, of course, is this nasty old woman, and we're told that they, she wasn't born two-headed. That's one theory. Well, we're told people who go back to when right. they knew her from childhood and early marriage, they say she wasn't two-headed. That the the second the head has been growing, I'm not saying we're supposed to believe that, but that is the story. And so then, she's constantly bugging the abbot. And uh, for what? What does she want him to do? Buy her tomatoes. Well, she wants, he, she's giving him the tomatoes if he'll only do one thing. <laughs> Baptize the head. Yes. Which whom she has named Rachel. Yes. And so, this is, this is a great scene where he's going, is it with the prior? He's going, they're going over to the refectory, and now they have to go across like an eight-lane highway driven by robotic cars. And of course, the, and you, you read, hmm? And trucks. That's right, and car, trucks. And cars and trucks uh, owned by Elon Musk, presumably. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, this is, what, what, this is really great, just a little sidelight. It says, they, their sensors were much better at detecting large hunks of metal than frail human flesh. So you read this, and the next day, the next day, an Uber self-driven car runs across a homeless woman. Yeah, but it was a Volvo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those diabolical uh, speeds. Yeah. So, and the question is, is this, I mean, the, 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 a lot of the heart of the book is in this scene, and the, 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 I read it, this is my third time to read it, the first two times, I really hated this part, this part of the book, hmm. and I, I didn't understand it, and I didn't like it. But you know, um, the, the 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 prior who is standing there touched it. He says, uh, "Rachel smiled at me. She opened her eyes and smiled at me." I says, "You don't believe that? Uh, deny it." And he says, okay, I deny it. Said, You're not very convincing, says the abbot. So, so the, and then at the very end, of course, Mrs. Grail is dead. That head is fallen over dead. And Rachel has come to life and is sort of singing, la, 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 la. And he realizes this, despite the freakishness, the absurdity, the impossibility, there's a human soul here. 
and he baptizes him. And surely, uh, Walter Miller doesn't end his human narrative, because the, the only narrative left is about shrimp, whiting, and shark. Surely, I mean, he is trying to say that, the, that not just the Catholic, but the, ultimately the Christian position is, we, ha we do have to learn to treat people that even, no matter how freakish and bizarre they are human beings. This is a very difficult lesson. It's if, if, you're, if you're a racist, if you're an anti-racist, if you're an anti-racist, you have to treat bigots like human beings. So that's it's impo you know, impossible. If you're a Jew or you're an anti-Semite, this is very difficult. So um, I, I, I think when Marl, Mark Kennedy talked about the, um, it's the moral argument that keeps the book moving. I think it's absolutely right. And it is, um, and, and, and it culminates in this, very off-putting, disturbing. Am I the only only person who got to, who has been disturbed every time I read it? My dear. Hi. Maybe I misinterpreted, but Rachel rejects the baptism because she does not need it. And I think the abbot finally realizes when she gives him the host. Yeah, that I don't understand. She is a new Eve. She is without sin. She does not need baptism. Well, she's been conceived. Yes, she has conceived. She's been conceived without sin. Yes. But she touches the abbot's forehead and says, "Live." Yes, she does. She and then he dies. Yeah. And then he dies. Right. Yes. So much for that. No. Well, no, but but she's meaning live eternally. Yeah. Eternal. Yes. Yes. Right. I, speaking again personally, <clears throat> I can't, I have, I've, I've always been troubled by this. I've come up with a partial, very partial interpretation that makes me happy, and now you're making me unhappy again, reminding me of these uh, facts. I, I think that one can work out a theological understanding of it, which you all are, and I hope you continue it. But I don't think it dramatically, I, f I find it uh, not entirely satisfactory. How about you all? You found it satisfactory, my dear? No, you didn't. Maybe it's because it's not that he was the only one, but uh, the recent death of Stephen Hawking brought up the idea that there are so many people saying we can colonize other planets, other places, and everything will be lovely. And at the end, when, when the monastery has its own people and, and, you know, mothers, fathers and all that, and children going off, they don't seem to face the same problem that they're moving human beings as God created us, sinful human beings, off to a new place. And what are you hoping for there? Well, in this case, I think you're, you're sort of making uh, C.S. Lewis's argument that interstellar uh, travel and colonization will only be transporting uh, the human evil and right. sinfulness. But I don't think... Uh, but they don't get that. <clears throat> yeah, well, I don't think oh, that... No, no. I, I think that argument... You see, that would work. That would be a valid objection in a novel where it was 
that uh, will where what what is the parody in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? They will boldly split infinitives that have never been split before. <laughs> that they will boldly go. In other words, this the colonization of a planet in Alpha Centauri is not portrayed as the triumph of the human race in conquering new worlds. It's portrayed simply as trying to save the best best qualities of human life and the Christian tradition. Mark, you were looking up a passage. No? I'll, no. Well, I hadn't come across it. Okay. I okay. listen to what you had to say. Well, that's a waste of time. Well, I think that's a, uh, a very good point, and that is that it's not, uh, it's not that the people in the rockets have a choice. They're escaping what they fear is going to be the destruction where only the vultures and sharks will continue to live. Yeah. I do think, I never, I hadn't noticed how beautiful the last couple of pages are. You see this lovely beach scene, the, sh the plankton, sh the shrimp are in the waves, and the whiting, which are, by the way, quite a nice little fish if you, in, in, in the southern climates, the whiting are uh, eating the shrimp, and then the shark is coming and eating, and eating the whiting, and then this wind changes, and a hot wind comes in blowing dust, and all the shrimp and whiting are dead, and the shark goes into deep water, and it, it's going to be, he's going to be hungry that winter, but they're dead. Clear These, water. Yeah, clear water. Yeah. They're dead, but the shark will live. And, I mean, I don't think I'm reading too much into this to suggest that the shark element in human nature is what will survive this next Holocaust, and it will come roaring back maybe another 2,000 years later. Well, it says very last words. He was very hungry. Yes, he was very hungry. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Shall we take a, a brief break, yes. and then we'll... Uh, you could talk about uh, Miller's life. We a could. Bit. Yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. No, you think you're going to. All right. No, we can't.